You know, you uh, heard just a few minutes ago that our Authentic Fellowship Conference begins this week. And um, I hope that every one of you will be able to come out for some part of it. Maybe you'll come on Monday night. Maybe you'll come on Friday afternoon. Uh, I don't know, but I, I believe there's something there for everyone, and I hope that you'll be able to join us. But as that title of the conference has been communicated, over the past month or so, people have come up to me and others and said, authentic fellowship, what do you mean? Uh, I, I've had kids ask it. I've had adults ask it. I've, I've had leaders ask it. And I've had people who might come to some part of it say, what exactly do you mean? And what I would say to them and what I would say right now is I think what helps us is to start first with the word fellowship. The word fellowship. If you've ever gotten coffee or water from the little bitty hospitality center we have back in just outside the door there, you'll see the word koinonia on the wall. Uh, it's a Greek word, and then it's a word that we translate as fellowship. But I still think it's hard to sometimes get your hands around what that word is. I love the Spanish word for fellowship. Uh, the Spanish word for fellowship is participación. And it's just like what it sounds like. It's participation. Fellowship is a shared participation. And the kind of fellowship that God has in mind for Christians is a type of fellowship, a type of participation that is sharing in life the good, the bad, and the ugly. Uh, it's, it's sharing it with other people as well as sharing it with God. And in fact, when fellowship is, is at its, when it's at its peak, and typically it's just moments when that's the case, moments at a time, but when fellowship is all that it is meant to be, it's vertical and horizontal at the very same time. I always tend to think of the cross. I, I tend to think of that vertical beam of being God reaching down to us and at the same time, a horizontal beam where we're connected one to the other. And somehow, we're connected to him and to each other at the same time in real koinonia, in real participación. And today, what I'd like us to do is to look at Ephesians chapter 4 to get a little better idea of this idea that God has given us about the ways that he has designed us for this shared life. Because um, God didn't design, uh, the, the Christian life wasn't meant to be a Lone Ranger experience. But as we look at the topic of, of uh, fellowship this week, I want you to know one other phrase that we're going to be looking at. And the reason is, is because I think we'll see today, these two words are completely united in concept in the Bible. They're two totally different concepts, but they meet and that other phrase, a little, it's going to sound like a $64 word, but it's, when you break it down, it's not a big deal. But you, on the one hand, you have fellowship, the idea of shared life. But the other word, the other phrase is progressive sanctification. That and four and a half dollars will get you a cup of coffee. But progressive sanctification is this idea that 
we are becoming more and more and more like Christ. And the reason that's really important is if you're a Christian this morning, if you're a Christian today, you're a Christian because although all of us come there in a different way in terms of our specific story, we all come the same way in this regard. If you're a Christian, somewhere along the way you became aware that you were a sinner you were aware that you somehow fell short of the standards of a holy God. And you became aware that you deserved his judgment, just like I did. And, and, and becoming aware of your sin and becoming aware of deserved judgment and realizing I can't do anything about it, you became aware that Jesus Christ didn't just come to the world to teach or to live a perfect life, but he came to die in your place on the cross so that you wouldn't have to pay for your sins. He paid your sins, and then on top of it, not only did he do that, but he offered you the gift of eternal life to all who believe. So if you become a Christian, that is your story, however you got there. If that isn't your story, I don't know any evidence in the Bible that would su suggest that you would be a Christian. And I don't mean that in a mean or judgmental way. I just mean that's the only thing I see in the Scripture. But what's really interesting, and this is, I'll, don't turn there, but just maybe listen to these two verses before we read from Ephesians chapter 4. But notice in the book of Romans in chapter 5, Paul says this, Therefore, having been justified by faith... And what he means is, having been declared righteous by God because you believe that Jesus died in your place and paid for your judgment, the judgment of your sins, because you believe he was raised from the dead and can really give eternal life freely. That's what it means to be justified by faith. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. But look at this, through whom also we have obtained our introduction by faith into this grace in which we stand. Obtained an introduction. In other words, if you're a Christian, becoming a Christian is just an introduction. It's just the beginning. You, you, you weren't saved merely to go to heaven. You weren't saved merely to have your sins forgiven. You weren't saved merely to become his kid. All that's true, but that was never, ever in God's mind the bottom line. He wanted all that for you. The Bible makes it plain in the Old Testament and the New Testament. God takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked. He would rather that people see their sin and see their need for him and see his grace. He's made that so evident. But God's purpose for me and God's purpose for you was never that you would be the same person you were the day you were saved. He loved, when he, when he saved me, I was 19 years old. I'd been in the church my whole life, but I never understood the gospel until one night. And at that particular time in my life, although I was a churchgoer, I was as far from God as I'd ever been in my whole life. I was literally going 180 degrees away from him, showing up at church because I had a habit raised during my early years. I had a consciousness of God. I feared God in, I think, a largely appropriate way, but I certainly didn't understand the gospel. And I was living my life in a different direction, moving away from him. And at the very moment when God should have discarded me the most, 
the time that God should have turned his back on me if he were merely just. At that very moment when I offered him nothing, he rescued me by delivering a message to me that, John, when Jesus died for you, it was a gift not only of his death, but of all forgiveness of all of your sins and the gift of eternal life. You can know you're going to heaven. And that shocked me. But, but what the Bible makes very plain, and this is this word progressive sanctification, forgive me for the slightly extended explanation, but it'll feed into everything we do this week. When God saved me by his grace, he didn't save me to stay angry. He didn't save me to stay deceitful and immoral. He didn't save me to stay proud. Did he love me enough when I was all those things? You bet. He drew me into a sweet fellowship with him, even though I wouldn't have wanted any fellowship with me. That's how marvelous his grace is. But his idea was never that I would stay that way. Listen to these words again in Romans 8. This is one of the very first verses somebody told me to memorize. I was a young Christian, about one year old, and I had a, a few friends who were ahead of me in the Christian life. Quite a few. In fact, everybody was ahead of me in the Christian life. But I remember that I had gone through some kind of struggle where I was really fearful, struggling and angry with myself because I felt like I just screwed up too badly and that I was just really um, putting myself in a, help, in a hopeless situation and I just felt like kind of, there's just no way out of this or no way through it. And this guy said, I want you to memorize a verse. So he told me a verse that many of you have memorized. He told me the verse Romans 8, 28. And I read it, and I read it, and I practiced, and I read it, and I practiced, until finally the word sank into my heart. And we know that God causes all things to work together for good for anyone who loves him and is called according to his purpose. Frankly, it shocked my life. It actually shifted my focus for the rest of my life. It was one of many biblical truths that kind of redirected me by a few degrees to say this from the age of 19 or 20 when I learned that verse. From now on, I know God is going to use everything in my life for good. Everything. As, as long as I love him and as long as I'm called according to his purpose, he's going to use everything for good, which was a remarkable promise to me. It was almost as remarkable as taking someone like me to heaven. You can use it all for good, but you know what? It was over 30 years before I ever bothered to read the next verse. I mean, I read it reading through the Bible like you do, but if somebody had said to me like someone did 10 years ago, uh, how many of you know Romans 8, 28? And it was a room almost this size, and a bunch of hands went up, you know? And then the speaker said, how many of you know Romans 8, 29? And I'll bet there were two hands that were up. None of us knew it. And although I had known that verse for 30, 35 years, I never knew that verse 29 is actually the continuation of verse 28. This is what it says. 
We know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his son so that he would be the firstborn among many brethren. Verse 28, he's going to use it all for good if you love him, if you're called according to his purpose. Verse 29, guess what his purpose is? to conform you to the very image of his son. Does he want you to go to heaven? Sure. Do you want your sins to be forgiven? You bet. Does he want you to be his son or his daughter? Absolutely. He's not interested in having grandchildren. Grandchildren are people who who are someone else's child and I'm connected to them, but everybody who comes to faith in Christ has to come as a son or a daughter. They, no one comes as a grandchild. But when you come to him, you don't come to stay what you were on the day that you came to know him. Why? Well, because you and I are supposed to be progressively matured. We're, we're supposed to become progressively what God set us out to be. So we have this idea of fellowship which is that shared life, shared between one another and shared with him. It, it means that I don't live isolated. But not only that, I don't live to stay who I was. If at 62 I was as angry and as impulsive and as self-willed and as deceitful and as immoral and all the other things that I was, if those things were to characterize my life, I would be like a baby that never grew. I'd be like a person who never got to fulfill the purpose for which he had been made. And with that in mind, I want us to look at Ephesians chapter 4, because in chapters 1, 2, and 3, what he said is this, if you're a Christian, you were chosen before the foundation of the world. None of us would have known that if the Bible didn't reveal it. Nobody, no Christian wakes up and say, I feel like I was chosen before the world was made, but that's what it teaches us. And then it, it teaches us, it reminds us, by the way, it was all by grace. It was nothing you've done. You could have never gotten God's favor. He just dumped it on you because he's a gracious God. For by grace you've been saved through faith, that not of yourselves. It's the gift of God, not the result of works, lest anyone would ever boast. But he also tells us something else in the next verse. He says, for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which he prepared beforehand, meaning before you even knew him. God prepared good works for you and for me. Well, here's the thing, folks. If I don't become the mature man, the progressively sanctified man that I was designed to be, there, I don't have a snowball's chance in hell of ever accomplishing the things for which he set me out. Neither do you. So one of the questions I have is, well, then how do I get there? How does this progressive sanctification, this process of being made holy like God wants me to be, how, how do I really change? Well, let's look at an amazing passage of Scripture, chapter 4, and it's going to be brief because we're trying to cover 16 verses in 19 minutes, but you know me. I'm a person of few words, so I'm sure we can do that. Someone laughed way too loudly there. <laughs> Paul says, therefore I, in view of the fact, he's just gotten through saying three or four times in the previous chapters, your life and my life 
having become Christians, are ultimately to exist for the purpose of praising the glory of God's grace, meaning that when people see the way you relate with your kid, when see, people see the way you relate with your neighbor or your coworker, when, when people see the way you handle hardship, what is meant to happen is that somehow people get an aroma of the grace of God and that somewhere along the way they say, I don't know what it is about her, but there's something that is deeply attractive. It calls out to my heart. There's just something about her. We've got story after story in this church of some of you who have come to Christ because you notice the aroma of someone else's life. Therefore, I, in view of the fact that I'm, you and I are supposed to live to bring God glory, the, praise the glory of his grace, even though we were lost in our trespass and sin, therefore, in spite of all that history, the, I, the prisoner of the Lord, implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you've been called. That's verse one. Implore is an idea of, it's both a command and a, and a request. It's unusual in the sense that it is a challenge, a call, a demand, if you will, but it's also he's making it from his knees. I implore you. I beg you. And oh, by the way, God is commanding it. Walk worthy of the calling with which you have been called. In other words, if you're a Christian, you were called to Christ. Now walk worthy of that. Well, what does that mean? And how do I do it? And what you'll see is this idea of progressive sanctification, which we'll talk about all week, and this idea of fellowship, which we'll talk about all week, are completely joined at the very place of learning to walk worthy of the calling with which you've been called. I, I hope that makes a little bit of sense. So real fellowship, authentic fellowship with God and with each other, as well as becoming increasingly sanctified, when those come together, that is where we end up having this maturing take place. He says, I implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you've been called. Well, what would that look like if I was walking worthy of the manner, of the manner I was called? With all humility and gentleness, with patience, showing tolerance for one another in love. And I will just confess here, this is where I don't like the New American Standard 1995 translation as much as the good old one, because I can't stand the word tolerance. I've become very intolerant of the word. Um, and, and I think the reason is it's just, been, it's just been ruined for me in the last 40 or 50 years. I think there was a time when the word tolerant was fine and made good sense. But anymore, it, it kind of means... It's just weak. It's a lame word, you know? Tolerate, you know? It's just be tolerant. I like the old one. It was showing forbearance. Sounds kind of fancy and British, but, you know, I exhort you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you've been called with all humility and meekness, bearing with one another in love. That's really what it is. Tolerance, I, I think, is kind of too impotent a word, but but bearing with each other in love? See, what that means is, why do you and why do I isolate? Why do we not want to be near people? There aren't too many people in this room who frequently don't want to be with people. Well, the reason is because if, if I was around people very much, I would have to show all kinds of forbearance. I, I, it would be really hard to be humble around some people, right? You look at them and you go, 
Good grief, how can I be humble with her? What God is saying is, if you're going to walk the way you were meant to walk, there's meant to be a humility and a meekness and a patient endurance with other people. Being diligent to preserve the being diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. Why is that a big deal? Why is it important to preserve unity of the Spirit, whatever those words mean? Here's why. Look at verse 4 and 5 and 6. For there is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all, through all, and in all. You see that word that comes up over and over in those three verses? One. Why do I need to learn to build unity with my wife or my kids? What if it's a hard relationship? What if it's somebody I just don't like? What if it's somebody who's really hurt me? Well, what God is saying is, John, I understand. In fact, the, the rest of the book tells me things to do about that. But what he's saying is, if you're not becoming progressively sanctified, and if you're not living for the purpose of the glory of my grace, what will happen is you'll become selfish and isolated, and that's not what I want for you. Why? Well, because, John, there is just one body. There is just one spirit. You were called in one hope. Every one of us, if you're a Christian, was called in the very same hope of your calling. For there is only one Lord. There's only one faith. There's only one baptism. There's only one God and Father. How many of you have been in churches that have split or broken apart within your life? Let me just see. I'd like to see a show of hands. A painful question, but okay, yeah. Upwards of 50% of us. If it hurt you as much as it did me, here's why. Because there is only one body and only one spirit, and you were called in only one hope of your calling, and there is only one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father. In other words, if you've ever experienced a split in a marriage to another Christian person, if you've ever experienced a split within a church, what you experienced was a severing of something that was only to grow more intimate. It was, only to, it was designed only to bring about more unity. Why? Because that's what would result in God getting glory. And so if you're anything like me, and you Somewhere in your heart, you know you like being connected. You have this one friend that you have lunch with twice a month, and it's like the one time of the month where you feel like the, the clock goes by so fast. It doesn't take any time. It's one of those easy people. Or maybe you've had a sport team, or maybe you've had a, a job or a something where you were close with somebody and you felt like he had your back. That's exactly what we were built for. And it's exactly what we're supposed to give each other. And as we'll see in just a minute, when we don't have it and when we don't pursue it, there is a guarantee from God. We will never accomplish the purposes for which he saved us. Never. That's so important to me. Because um, 
43 years ago, he saved me. He could have taken me home then. But he left me here for something, and he left you here for something. Well, what's the something? Why did he bother leaving you? If his whole goal was just to take you to heaven and forgive you and all that other junk, he, 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 the minute you believe the gospel, woof, little baby rapture. Well, look at what it says. But to each one of us, grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led captive a host of captives. He gave gifts to men. So he's talking about unity, but notice he just moves from one, 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 unity, this idea of all of us have a common purpose, and now he's going to talk about individuals. He says in 10 and 11 that he, what this expression, he ascended, what does it mean? Except he had also descended into the lower parts of the earth. And he who descended is himself also he who ascended far above the heavens that he might fill all things. Talking about Jesus, of course. And verse 11, he gave some as apostles. He gave some as prophets and some as evangelists and some as pastors and teachers. Now, he only mentions five gifts here. And if you want to look at some of the other gifts in the body of Christ, you'll see him in 1 Corinthians 12. Uh, you'll see him in 1 Peter 4. You'll see them in a variety of places. He's, he's only addressing the, church, the gifts that were at the foundation of the church, meaning the thing that got the church started. But there's a reason for that. Look at what he tells us those people's job is. The people he gave to the body who were apostles and prophets long ago, and he's given some today as evangelists, pastors, and teachers— Notice what their job is in verse 12, because this now, what I'm getting ready to read is going to show you how progressive sanctification ties with fellowship and why this whole week is a week on authentic fellowship. He says, for the equipping of the saints for the work of service to the building up of the body of Christ. In other words, if a, a man or woman has a gift in pastor or, pastor or teacher or evangelist, what they do is they help equip other people to do the work of service. That's what they do. They equip other people to do the work of service. That doesn't mean they don't serve. If you get somebody who all they do is equip others and they're not doing service themselves, something is disconnected. But but their primary function for the sake of the body is to equip the body to be what it was meant to be. So if you go to a sermon or you go to a learning center class or you're teaching fifth graders, what you're doing in that role, or if you're a small group leader and you draw alongside them, or, or you help in the children's ministry by telling stories and building relationships and making kids welcome. By the way, do you know that sometimes we have families who become committed, involved, growing believers in this church because their two-year-old was really well-received. Somebody took that child and calmed him and befriended him and showed him by their manner what a great, great God we have. So that that two-year-old was saying, Mommy, I want to go back there. Or at least a two-year-old version of that. I'm a little out of touch. I've I've got a nine-month-old, I can show you the picture. I've got a six-month-old, a seven-month-old, I can show you the picture. But 
They're not quite there, but we'll save that. But this is what he says, to equip the saints to do the, by the way, I don't know how many of you said goodbye to somebody on the phone last night or said goodnight when you went to bed. I don't know how many of you, somebody said, you're such a saint. But if you're a Christian, that's what it says here. What it says is if you know Christ, you're actually a saint, which just means one called apart for the purpose of God. That's all it means. It means a holy one, one that's been separated for a purpose. Well, look at the purpose. Pastors and teachers are to equip the saints for the work of service to the building up of the body of Christ. Well, what does the building up of the body of Christ mean? Until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to a mature man, to the measure of the stature belonging to the fullness of Christ. Long sentence, but what it means is becoming like Jesus. That's what it's saying. He's saying that as long as the body of Christ is on earth, until he takes us home, the job of pastors and teachers or foundational gifted people is to train and equip and make it real for people that they can do the work of service. Why? Well, because if everyone isn't doing the work of service for which he or she was laid aside for, if, if they're not doing it, we will never reach the mature man as a body. We will never reach the measure of the stature belonging to the fullness of Christ. Why? Well, because he never conceived of Christianity as a Lone Ranger religion. It was never about you reading all you can read, memorizing all you can memorize, and, and putting it all in you so that you in and of yourself can do that. You were built to be connected to somebody else and for somebody else to be connected to you. Why? You need it and so do they. Let's look at the proof. As a result, the result of people functioning in the body of Christ. See, authentic fellowship is this idea of I'm going to connect who I really am with you, with who you really are, with the God for who he really is in the word. In other words, I'm not going to hide. I'm not going to pretend because dad God has set me apart for something better. If I'm stuck being selfish, if I'm stuck being stubborn, if I'm stuck being hard to get along with, if I'm stuck being uh, de deceitful, if anything about me as a Christian is not yet like Jesus and I have been letting myself get comfortable in it, it's time to stop. When we have communion in a couple of minutes, part of communion is it's a rinsing of the soul before a living God to say, I have not been the man. I have not been the woman you called me to be, but Jesus Christ has already paid for my sins and I don't need to stay in it any longer. God, make me what you made me to be. And look at the role that we have with each other. As a result, we're no longer to be children tossed here and there by waves, carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men, by craftiness and deceitful scheming. In other words, we're not built to be confused continually in our Christian life or in our life out in the world. Rather, speaking the truth in love, verse 15, that's this idea of the connectedness of fellowship, Speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in all aspects into him who is the head, even Christ. You remember what Ashton said about the conferences, how do we point each other to Christ? That's exactly what it's saying. It's saying, if God will show me and if I will listen to my role in the body of Christ, I can actually help other people grow up 
and fit within the body, being fit and held together by that which every joint supplies. What joint are you? You may say I'm nothing more than an ankle. Go ahead and mess up your ankle a few times. You find out whether that's unimportant. It's saying every joint supplies something. What is it? Well, according to the proper working of each individual part causes the growth of the body for the building up of itself in love. If every part of the body is carrying out what she or he was meant to carry out, do you have any earthly idea what it would do? People outside of Christ would say, what in the world is it you people have? And because we've been broken down enough by seeing our sin, because we've seen it's all the glory of his grace, we'd say, you know what? The only thing we have is a person, Jesus Christ. Come along, feel free to grow and learn with us. Well, yeah, but I mean, you guys like each other. I mean, you got people working in elementary schools. You got people reaching out to people who are needy. You got people who are crossing racial lines and cultural lines. Well, of course. Of course we are. Because that's what Jesus is like. Folks, you and I are built for a very authentic fellowship with God and with one another. And if we don't do it, we will never find out what you were meant to supply to the body. And this body will be weakened as a result. Let's pray. Father, You're a mighty God. You're such a good God. And you can do marvelous things in us. You can save people like me who in no way deserved any of your grace. But that's the point. It's all to the glory, to the praise of the glory of your grace. Father, would you please help each one of us to see a little more of how we can connect to one another and connect to you so that we can really be the kind of young men and young women, older men and older women that we were designed to be, all so that you get the glory and we get the joy of partnering with you. Lord, bless each one here. If any don't know you yet, would you please help them talk to one of us up front afterwards so that they might understand the call of God to life with you. And to the rest of us, God, how I pray that you would use this week to strengthen our faith increase our joy, and redirect us wherever it's needed. For your sake, we pray in Jesus' name, amen.